think you can hear me. I can hear myself. This is loud. Um, thank you for those you've been praying for me. I always need prayers. Um, I know at least James was praying for me. Thank you, James. Um, I'm sure many others as well. <clears throat> We're, we've come to today to the last chapter of Hebrews. So what do I do here? Do I press up or down when I want to change? Right, gotcha. Okay, thanks. We've come to the last chapter of Hebrews here, chapters 13. It's been a wonderful, informative, uh, challenging study, and I have learned a whole lot um, thanks to the various gifted brethren who have studied hard and preached with a passion and conviction. We even had people preach from around the world. Luke Johnson in Tanzania preached a couple of sermons, and Andy Meinzering in Sri Lanka also preached as well, so shout out to them. Chapter 2012, I mean, rather, 12, verses 28 and 29 tell us we need to worship God acceptably with reverence and fear. So all along, Hebrews has been showing us how to do that uh, or how not to do it. For example, in the warning passages, we can only worship God on his terms, not on ours. Um, in the first 12 chapters, the author has carefully laid out and developed the theme that Christ is better or superior in his person and in his work to the things of the old covenant. That's the law, which was just a shadow of the reality found and completely fulfilled in Christ. You know, the law was a shadow, Christ is the substance. The law was the signpost, Christ is the destination. So, hmm, sticking to my teeth. Um, in, verse, in chapter 13, the author continues to further address the need for acceptable worship. He's kind of wrapping things up and touching on a uh, few seemingly miscellaneous topics, topics that don't require the extended argument uh, that he's made in the first 12 chapters to convince the wavering Hebrews not to give up but to keep on. But these topics are definitely not trivial. They're very important and a reminder that if you are truly worshiping God acceptably, the vertical dimension... You will also need to have a right relationship with others and the world, the horizontal dimension. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbors yourself. Frankly, it's possible to preach an entire sermon or a series of sermons on each verse, but we don't have time for that, uh, so we have to cover these topics in an overview fashion, a flyover, a bird's eye view, the big picture, not the details. So if you think I'm leaving th some things out, I definitely am. Um, Charles Swindoll has a concise overview of today's passage. <clears throat> he says um, it has to do with, with our relationship, verse 1, a relationship with other believers, verse 2, relationship with strangers, verse 3, with prisoners, verse 4, with our spouse, and verse five, verses 5 and 6, with money. So, um, let's go ahead and um, read uh, today's passage here, let brotherly love continue. I'm, I do, I'm doing it in the ESV, but when I preach, I'll use different of the different um, translations. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. 
And let the marriage bed be, marriage bed, oops, be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the um, first uh, verse one um, is the first of these topics or commands. Um, Let brotherly love continue is the most frequent translation of verse one. Only four words, but packed with meaning. Um, Brotherly love in the Greek is one compound word. Philadelphia, you've heard that name before, it's the city, I think, as well, which comes from two Greek words, phylos, which means the kind of love and a close friendship, uh, uh, someone who you're fond of, who is beloved to you, kind of intimate family kind of love, and adelphos, which means brother. So Philadelphia refers to this close, uh, fond, beloved kind of love between family members. Well, as Christians, as believers, we are all part of the same spiritual family, are we not? Um, The common bond is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, We have the same Savior, the same Father, and we're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. Hebrews 2.11 tells us that we're all in the same family, and so Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers. In fact, brotherly love is an evidence of the genuineness of our conversion. 1 John 3.14 says, we know we have passed from death into life. Why? Because we love our brothers, Philadelphia. So why is brotherly love encouraged by the author? Well, remember, in loving, healthy families, we look out for each other. We encourage each other. We challenge each other, learn from each other, function as a support system to help us through the trials and stresses of life. Family is where we learn right from wrong, where our moral compass is developed. Um, The Hebrew converts were becoming discouraged. Some were ready to give up and take the easy way out by going back to Judaism, uh, which was familiar. I mean, that's where they came from, and it was safer at that point. At that point, it was a religion approved by Rome. So presto, no more persecution, no more hardship. Bad mistake, though. These these discouraged converts needed the family support and the encouragement and the the kind of like, you know, don't give up encouragement from Christian brothers and sisters to avoid the tragic mistake <clears throat> of giving up and thereby throwing away the incredible treasure of Christ. Even if we're not tempted to give up in Christianity, brotherly love is still an important and very necessary part of normal Christian life. You know, it includes hospitality, you know, enjoying each other's company, eating out, eating in, uh, spending time together, uh, getting to know each other, um, fellowship, that kind of stuff. And overall, I think the chapel does an excellent job of um, being hospitable in, in, the, in their brotherly love, more, much more so than other churches I've been involved with or seen over the years. Um, yet, we must not rest on our laurels. Um, in his epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul commends them for their brotherly love. He said, in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But then he says, yet we encourage you we urge you to do so more and more. In other words, there's no coaching, coaching, excuse me, no coasting in the Christian life, okay? If you're going uphill in a, in a motor vehicle and um, you let off, you take your foot off the gas and you put yourself in neutral, you're going to go backwards, you know? There's, there's no staying still. You're either going forward or you're going backwards. If you want to be a coaster, 
You're better off being a part of a table setting rather than a Christian. Um, Verse 2, showing hospitality to strangers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Here we have another Greek compound word, compound Greek word, excuse me, uh, philo or philoxenia, which comes from t- two Greek words, philo, you know, the one, philos, the close devoted type of love, and xenos meaning stranger. You know, our word xenophobia means fear of strangers. So philoxenia means love for strangers. Um, the author is uh, sort of making a play on words to kind of get our attention here. Uh, this refers especially to Christian brothers and sisters we don't know. For example, traveling preachers, evangelists, Christian workers, missionaries, that kind of stuff. Um, The epistle of 3 John references this in verses 5 to 8. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they're strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so we may work together for the truth. Ryrie has a, a helpful uh, footnote for these verses. He says this means to help them on their journey with food, money, arrangements for companions, means of travel, and so on. Notice when we do, do this, this honors God, and it also shows that we're working together with them for the truth. We're all part of the, the same family, the same team. Now, the author dangles something very interesting in these verses. For by hospitality to strangers, quote, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Okay. Um, the primary reference to this is in Genesis 18, uh, where Abraham is visi- visited by three strangers, and they turned out to be angels, one of whom was God himself, Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. Kent Hughes helpfully comments, by presenting this delectable possibility of hosting a real angel, the author was not promoting hospitality and the chance one might luck out and get an angel, but he was simply saying that the possibility of its happening indicated how much God prizes hospitality in his people. And it's not just to Christian, Christian strangers that we're to show hospitality, um, but also to non-Christians. Galatians 6.10 says... Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, that's Christians and non-Christians, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So our first obligation is home, is to be hospitable to Christian strangers, part of the greater family of Christ, Um, but then also to non-Christians. This way we're letting our light shine before unbelievers so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, Matthew 5.16. Now, there's another segment, too, here. Um, Remembering the prisoners and the persecuted, verse 3. This is another segment of people that we are to show our our caring and love and supportive relationship with. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. The Hebrew Christians had encountered... Uh, persecution and uh, imprisonment previously. Uh, Hebrews 10, 32 to 34 says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. 
sometimes being partners with those so treated. And here it is, for you had, compa- you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you yourself knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. So now he's calling on them to um, continue in this ministry of empathy and care for those imprisoned and suffering. The early Christians had a real um, rep- reputation for caring for their own. Um, Aristides was an early second century Greek philosopher from Athens who became a convert to Christianity. And he described how the Christians cared for each other <coughs> and for the imprisoned for the sake of Christ. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brothers after the flesh, but brothers after the spirit and in God. And if they hear, hear the one of their numbers, the one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, that's Jesus, all of them anxiously minister to his need. And if it's possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Boy, is that hospitality or what? Um, well, you, might, you might pray for me. I'm kind of near tears today, so just pray for, pray for me. Today is the International Day of Prayer for persecuted Christians. Each year, Open Doors publishes a list of the top 50 countries for persecution. The 50 places around the world where it costs most to be a Christian, <clears throat> with North Korea having been at the top of the list now for 19 straight years, when this year is finished, it will be 20 years in a row. Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the year in the world. 245 million Christians around the world are experiencing high levels of persecution. Six years ago, North Korea was the only country rated as the extreme level of persecution of Christians. Today, six years later, 11 countries are, are rated in the extreme level. Satan knows his time is short. He's mad, and he wants to ramp up persecution. But you can't pers- persecute the real church out of victory. Um, the number one request of persecuted Christians is pray for us. Pray for us. Um, Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors, those are two great resources for the prayer needs of the persecuted, and they, they give very helpful suggestions on how to effectively pray for them. Brother Andrew, who founded Open Doors, said this, our prayers can go where we cannot. <clears throat> there are no borders, no prison walls, no doors that are closed to us when we pray. I'm sure that if you or I, um, or one of us here, uh, were one of the 50,000 Christians, at least 50,000 Christians, suffering and being tortured in one of North Korea's prison camps, we wouldn't want to be prayed for only once a year. We'd want to be remembered frequently and regularly. So I encourage us, let's all be faithful prayer warriors on behalf of those who are being persecuted for the cause of Christ. Another aspect of um, remembering those in prison is ministering to those in prison or jail for the purpose, purpose of sharing the goodness of the gospel with them, okay? We're supposed to preach the gospel to every creature, including those in prison. 
Chuck Swindoll notes that the reference to prisoners also has application to those who have been marginalized or cast out by society. And he quotes Chuck Colson, the founder of Prison Fellowship, as saying, taking the gospel to people wherever they are, death row, the ghetto, or next door, is frontline evangelism, frontline love. Here in Yakima, uh, we have some jail ministries, I can't mention them all, that have been reaching out to local prisoners uh, with frontline evangelism. There's been the Godfather, Godfather, excuse me, Godpod. <laughs> that's, that's an especially aggressive form of evangelism. Uh, <laughs> um, the Godpod, which uh, Dave uh, Kearns has been involved for at least eight years, um, and he's been teaching them of an Old Testament prisoner you've heard of, Joseph. Okay. And the book of Genesis. Uh, unfortunately, the Godpod has been closed. Uh, shut down because of the COVID since March, but I'm sure it will eventually reopen and that ministry will continue. There is also the women's version of God Pod. On a much broader level, there's the Emmaus Prison Ministry, which provides nearly 400,000 Bible study courses every year for prisoners, uh, free of charge, with the goal of helping them find spiritual freedom behind bars. Our prison coordinator in Alaska writes, I have in my computer 37 pages of comments by inmates, some stating they are lost, some calling out for help, and many having come to know me, having come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through these studies. A prison coordinator in North Carolina writes, it's a rare week that we don't find at least one prisoner reporting that he or she has been born again as a result of the Emmaus courses. Verse four, marriage and moral purity. Marriage should be honored by, uh, by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual, sexually immoral. So verse 4a, that first clause, marriage should be honored by all. Marriage is ordained by God. Um, Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is God's idea. It's not man's. We didn't invent that. And God has made marriage and family the basic building block of society. And when we mess with that anyway, we're asking for big trouble. Kent Hughes says, marriage is patently heterosexual and indissoluble. As Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, Matthew 19. Jesus honored marriage by performing his first miracle, <coughs> miracle at a wedding, John 2. Then Kent goes on to translate our f the, that phrase literally. I love this. Let marriage be precious to all of you. Did you like that? Let marriage be precious to all of you? Um, he said, as Christians, we celebrate marriage. Uh, we joyfully surround a couple that's out of their depth. <coughs> excuse, excuse me. Out of their depth, they make these wild, sacred promises to each other. And we celebrate the mystery with ancient invocations and feasting. Marriage is divinely given and deserves our greatest honor, to which I say, yes. Of course, uh, marriage also deserves not only public honor, but our private, personal honor in our own marriages as we seek to live out what we preach. Marriage and purity, clause 4b, the marriage bed kept pure. pure. The marriage bed is a euphemism for physical intimacy or sexual relations in a marriage. As many people have noted, God's moral laws have not changed. 
Albert Moeller comments, the Bible teaches that sexual morality comes down to one central thing. Sex belongs in marriage and nowhere else. He adds, every form of sex outside of marriage subverts and dishonored, dishonors marriage. And that would include premarital sex, living together before marriage, adultery, that's cheating on your spouse or with someone else's spouse, viewing pornography, homosexual behavior, and really all other forms of sexual immorality. Now, this teaching here was really radical in the, um, the pagan world of the Roman Empire where the sexual ethics and practices were awful. They were terrible. Uh, but the fact is, sadly, our culture today has become increasing like theirs, more and more like the ethics, social, uh, social, this, and social, yes, sexual ethics in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, ripe for God's judgment, and it's coming. The entertainment industry openly parades sexual sins as fun, entertaining, great, you know, you deserve it, all the while mocking sexual purity as outdated, foolish, irrelevant, abnormal, even weird, huh? When was the last time you saw a movie or a TV show that promoted sexual purity? That kind of entertainment, that's scarcer than hen's teeth. Um, so we Christians were called to live as lights in our dark, modern, pagan world uh, to uphold and live out God's values in the area of marriage and family. Marriage and judgment. God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral, verse 4c. There is both a present and a future judgment. Present judgment, unfaithfulness and sexual immorality regularly result in judgment in the present. Now, does God unleash lightning bolts from heaven against the immoral? Usually not. The example of um, Sodom and Gomorrah, where he burnt these two cities to ashes, that's the exception, not the rule. But God does and can directly judge Christians for certain sins sometimes. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, which we're all familiar with because we have breaking of bread, Paul warns the Corinthian believers that many of them were weak and sick, and some had even died. Why? Because they observed the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But God also judges um, people indirectly as a result of the way he set up the universe. For example, we have traffic laws designed to help us. We drive on the right-hand side of the road. We have stop signs that we stop at and stoplights, you know, when they just barrel on through. Um, we have speed limits. We don't cruise down Yakima Avenue at 90 miles an hour, uh, do we, Dave? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, when we don't, when we don't, when you observe these traffic laws, we're much more apt to um, travel safely. When we don't, we risk hurting ourselves and others. In fact, I've known a number of people that have been the victims of that kind of bad driving. Similarly, God has set up the universe in a way that when we do things His way, our lives on earth run a lot more smoothly uh, and we avoid a lot of needless heartache and trouble. For example, the book of Proverbs is chock full of wisdom. And when Christians and non-Christians don't heed these precepts, they end up with a lot of unnecessary trouble and grief. It's a form of God's indirect judgment. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee, not, not just avoid, but flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The physical misery of God's judgment in the, pres in the present is evident in the form of widespread STDs in our culture since the sexual revolution of the 60s. 
STD, that stands for sexually transmitted diseases, things like syphilis, gonorrhea, HIV, HPV, herpes, and a whole host of these things. Um, and in fact, the latest CDC report on STDs referenced a growing STD epidemic. Why am I not surprised? And there's a whole bunch of emotional, relational, and societal consequences to immorality. Guilt, shame, self-hatred, loneliness, depression, broken dreams, broken marriages, families, child abuse, domestic violence, fierce in the wind custody battles in which children are the big losers, the breakdown and degrading of society. Sorry, you guys pray for me harder. Uh, future, future judgment. There are two future judgments. When I was practicing, when I was holding up three fingers, <laughs> I said, how to do it. Uh, two future judgments, both in the afterlife. Okay, one is the great white throne judgment. For, for those who are not believers, who have not come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. That is, we call that hell. That's awful. Um, all who live sexually immoral lifestyles are not repentant. I'm gonna, let me just back up and make a, make a statement here. Um, there are people, there are, there are Christians uh, who come from sad background and they struggle with certain sexual sins. They're repentant, but they keep falling back into it. So they're weak, they're weak Christians, but they are repentant. Uh, they won't face this. But this is all who live sexually immoral lifestyles and are not repentant. They don't care. They will face God Almighty at the great white throne judgment, and they will face eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Read Revelation 21.8. The judgment seat of Christ is where Christian works, Christians' works will be judged. The sins Christians commit, including sexual sins, do not result in loss of salvation, but in loss of reward. Kent Hughes comments, anyone who imagines that unrepentant adultery or sexual immorality will go unpunished is in la-la land. It's happening now from every angle. In addition, a terrible judgment awaits for all unre unrepentant sinners will stand before God who is a consuming fire. Money, possessions, contentment. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So the first part of... Uh, of verse 5, 5a, instructs us to keep our lives from the free, from the love of money or material possessions. Now, notice it's not money per se, it's, but it's the love of money that's warned against. It can afflict both the wealthy millionaire as well as the homeless man at the mission. Nonetheless, money and material possessions hold special temptations and dangers for the wealthy, a category into which most of us... Uh, are included in our wealthy society compared to the third, third, third world, for example. Jesus urged, urged us to lay up treasure in heaven rather than earth where you can, you can be lost, you can de de decay, be stolen. He warned us that we cannot serve both God and money, Matthew 6. He warned us in Luke 12, 15, be careful to guard yourself against every kind of greed. He warned that the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and this is Mark. So how are riches deceitful? They're very deceitful, actually. They give us a false sense of, of security. We end up trusting in our riches and ourselves rather than on God. Material things cannot make us content, cannot satisfy our hearts. That's not how the Creator designed us. He made us so that only He and He alone can truly satisfy our deepest longings. 
1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, Paul warns about the serious dangers of loving money. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. Who likes to be trapped? Not me. And into many foolish and harmful desires. That doesn't sound good. That plunge people into ruin and destruction. That sounds bad. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That sounds bad. Some people eager for money. Eager for money have wandered from the faith. That sounds really bad. And pierced themselves through with many griefs. So in view of these warnings, what are we putting our hope in, our trust in? In God, who is more than able to supply all our needs, or in our own money and possessions, which are not only extremely hazardous spiritually, as we've just seen, but also very uns- un- un- uncertain. Um, have you heard of stock, stock market crashes, booms and busts, economic downturn, uh, downturns? In fact, the year 2020 has been Exhibit A on the uncertainty of riches. Um, that's really true. Um, contentment, be content with what you have. That's verse 5b. That's the right mindset. Chuck Swindoll defines contentment as being at peace with what we have as well as with our position in life, not constantly trying to scrape together more and more and more, but being satisfied with what God prescribed, uh, descri- provides. Uh, New Testament talks a lot about money and possessions, um, and very frequently, rightfully so, the theme of contentment comes up. 1 Timothy 6, 8 tells us the minimum we need in order to be content. He says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. By the words, we will be content with that, um, it probably should be better translated as we can and should be, or we need to be content with that. Most of us aren't content with that. Uh, Matthew 6, 31 to 33, instructs us where to put our trust in order to be content. So don't, do not worry, saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. God is not dumb. He knows what we need. He knows what we need before we ask. He knows what we need better than we know. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So why can we be be content with what we have? For he has said, uh, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's very strong in 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 the original language there. So this is a strong promise. This promise results in two things. First, it allows us to put our trust in God, in a faithful God. We can be truly content because He is an ever-present, dependable, faithful, caring, attentive Father who we can fully trust to supply all our needs when we are faithfully seeking His kingdom and His righteousness first. Uh, secondly, this promise results in a confident mindset. Huh? We can, so we can confidently say, Uh, The author then quotes from Psalms 118, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. These verses remind us that God, he's our helper, our protector, our provider. And that gives us the confidence to face the future. No matter what comes our way, no matter what people can do to us, no matter what happens. So let's review uh, and summarize a little bit here. Wrap up in conclusions. Kent Hughes has an interesting perspective on today's passage, which I like. He likens the tiny tiny Hebrew church to a microscopic dot and the increasingly hostile, turbulent seas of first century pagan Roman culture. And this tiny ship looked very, very vulnerable, seemingly no match for the powerful forces against it, forces that could just sink it at will. It was like there's no match. But he says here, 
But the author knew that the internal threat to the church was far more deadly. In fact, he knew it could ride out any storm if things were right on the inside. That is why he so strongly emphasized and instructed his people on how to treat those on board the ship, the church. Specifically, he advised first brotherly love, then hospitality, and then the necessity of sympathetically identifying with those in the church who are undergoing suffering. And in verses 4 to 6, he gives very personal ethical directives about marriage, money, and mindset. He knows that nothing will sink a church faster than moral wavering in, re in re respect to sex, materialism, and mental outlook. Uh, that's, that's profound. What he's saying is the church is much more threatened by internal weaknesses than it is by outside forces um, allied against it by a hostile, godless society. If we are strong and healthy and right on the inside, outside forces will never be able to sink us. The gates of hell will never prevail. This was true for the discouraged Hebrew church and for the, all the early church, but it's equally true for us in our culture in the U.S. today. I don't need to tell you that we're going through turbulent and troubled times as a nation. We're increasingly divided, polarized, at war with each other, um, shouting ever more loudly, lingering issues of race, racial injustice, strife, rioting, looting. We've also been experiencing the COVID crisis with all its accompanying hardships, including significant economic costs. And to top that, we've been going through an election season that has been stirring up a tsunami of strife, hatred, dishonesty, disinformation, and real downright ugliness on all sides of the political spectrum before a watching world and much more seriously before a watching God. Each side not only blames the other for all our ills, but also predicts utter and complete disaster if the other side wins the election. So how should we as a church, individual Christians in a church, respond to all this? How can we avoid being stained and tarnished by all this? How can we be salt and light and be an attractive witness for Christ in a way that's true to God's word and advances his kingdom? What has our passage taught us today? First, remember verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, can you think of a better helper than the Lord? He's the one that created the universe. He's, he's the most powerful. He knows everything. He's wiser. I mean, I mean, if I ever wanted a helper, it's God. It's, it's Jesus. It's the Lord. Um, and this reminds us then that God is in charge of what happens. Nothing happens that he does not permit or allow. And what if the worst we fear happens? Will we still be okay? Yes, we will. Listen to this quote here. This is a sobering dose of reality, biblical reality from David Platt. I'm going to read this very carefully. Even if we lift, even if we lose every freedom and protection we have as followers of Jesus Christ, in the United States, and even if our government were to become a completely totalitarian regime, we could still live an abundant life as long as we don't look to political leaders, platforms, or policies for our ultimate security and satisfaction. Oh, does that rock you? I think he's true, though. Getting officially involved in politics is not a proper role for the church. Ray Stedman comments, Ray Stedman comments, here's the point I'd like to make crystal clear. I do not believe the New Testament gives the church warrant to issue proclamations on political problems the nations may be facing or social issues. As a body, the church has no message to the world except the message of the gospel to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think he's correct. 
but he also adds, as individuals, the writer, the writer of Hebrews, correctly points out that we cannot be rightly related to God, who loves all men everywhere, and not show this in some definite, practical way. There must be, be deep concern about those who are oppressed, troubled, and underprivileged, and a readiness to help ourselves, to, and a readiness to involve ourselves in some kind of help. Remember, the ability of the church and of us as individuals to survive in perilous times depends on making sure the inside, our inside is strong, healthy, and right and pleasing in God's eyes. I would like to close. Pray for me. With a prayer for the healing of our nation. I've done that before a few months back, and I've, I've, um, and I've praying the same prayer with some modifications, so I, I don't like to pray in public, so I've written this out, and I'll read this, but you can pray with me, I hope. So, Lord, we humbly bow before you. We lament, Lord, and our hearts are pained, pained, distressed, and confused by what's going on in our nation. The things that have been happening are signs of deep spiritual wounds and sickness, and we're desperately in need of spiritual healing and revival. Have, mer have mercy on us and forgive us, O Lord. You've told us what you require of us in Micah 6, 8, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We confess that we've fallen woefully short of that. Have mercy on us and forgive us, O Lord. We think of areas of division and strife, politics, culture, race, and whatever else divides us. Help us, Lord, to humbly reach out to those who are hurting in these different areas, to reach out with love, compassion, and mercy, to listen to them, to try to understand them, <clears throat> to deeply care for them, enlarge our own perspectives on the things that divide us, and suffuse our hearts, suffuse our hearts with your grace and your mercy. Help each of us, Lord, to honestly examine our own lives, ourselves, for ways in which we fall short of responding in a godly, Christ-centered way in our current situation, for ways in which we are part of the problem. But Lord, we all have blind spots, we do. So we need to pray the prayer in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, most of all, we need a God-sent revival in our nation, really our only hope. You laid out the conditions for that in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. When I shut up the heavens, there's no rain, or command the locusts to devour, to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and lead their, and heal their land. So Lord, open our eyes and our hearts. Change us that we will humble ourselves and we will earnestly pray and seek your face that we will turn from our wicked ways so that individually and as a church and as a nation, we can experience a spiritual cleansing and a healing revival from you. And Lord... We were reminded of that wonderful day in heaven, in the future. Pictured in Revelation 5, referring to the Lord Jesus, you were slain with your blood. Purchased men from God, we betrayed. We betrayed. We betrayed the language of people and nation. Lord, we look forward to that day. Amen.